Welcome to the Evergreen Exchange. I'm Katie Versio, Senior Financial Planner at Evergreen Golf Cal. Today, I interview Blake Hilty at Socius Law, where we discuss all things divorce. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. All views and opinions expressed by any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen Golf Cal. Evergreen Golf Cal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to the Evergreen Exchange. Today is a special episode where I'm interviewing Blake Hilty, who's a divorce attorney with the Complex Divorce Group at Socius Law. So Blake, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Katie. Yeah, so today we're gonna talk about a topic that is not always the, it's not the most fun to talk about, but I think it's really important. Uh, Something I deal with a lot, uh, in addition to being a certified financial planner, I'm also a certified divorce financial analyst. So it's talking with clients through all parts of the divorce process, you know, before they get into it, as they're thinking about what are some steps I should be taking now. So that's what I wanted to start with today, Blake, is if someone is thinking about getting a divorce, what are some of the steps that you recommend thinking about before moving forward, both from a financial standpoint as well as an emotional standpoint? So starting with the, I guess, the non-emotional side, um, I would say that, you know, organization is kind of key in everything. And so it depends on um, which kind of client I have. You know, is that the client who's sort of in control of the finances, has all the documents, or is it the opposite? Um, and then sometimes there's situations where it's, you know, mutual that they both kind of have equal access to everything. Um, but I start by having the client um, really gather as much information and documentation as they can um, about all of the financial issues, whether it's bank accounts, credit cards, retirement, um, you know, all sorts of things. If business interests are involved, you know, financial statements, if it's possible to get those too. Um, and just so that just so that we have sort of an idea going into it, you know, what we're looking at. And there's ways, you know, to compel that information once a case is started, but it can it can just be, it can take time. It can be, you know, time consuming and stressful. And so if you can get all of that in advance, sort of, you know, before, um, before the litigation starts, if it goes that path, then that's going to be the best way to go. I would say from a, just a logistical standpoint, I think it's really important for clients to think about, you know, what is this going to look like day to day once we actually file the divorce? So, you know, if you have a client that really wants to stay in the family home, you know, where is the other spouse going to live? Um, You know, there are circumstances, I think it's rare that, you know, they can stay in the same house and sort of continue the same life that they had, although they're in a divorce. But I think that's rare, um, and I think people need to be prepared for that being uncomfortable to the extent that they need to figure out, okay, how is this going to work financially? Can they move closely? Can they get a rental? That sort of thing. So it's just figuring out that time period from when you file the divorce until it's actually finalized. I think a lot of people don't realize that that could be you know, a year or longer. Um, as much as people don't want to hear that, um, they sort of think of, oh, you know, there's this 90 day window. And once that's over, we'll be divorced. Um, and that's just just not the case. 
As far as the the kind of documentation um, goes, kind of going back to that, I would say that it's a good idea to maybe even take an inventory of the household, you know, just items around, um, you know, furniture, household goods, that kind of thing, depending on what's in there. Um, again, just because you don't know what can happen. And so, you know, people's memories are, they're just, they're not good. Um, you know, I can probably barely remember what happened last month. And so when you get separated from something for a long time, having to go back without that inventory can be, can be really difficult. On the emotional side, you know, I think a lot of times there's a stigma that goes along with starting up a counselor ther therapist relationship, um, especially in a divorce. I think a lot of times people think, you know, how will that be used against me? Um, and, you know, is that something that I should shy away from? Um, and I, I don't advise that. I, I think quite the opposite. I think, I think having, you know, good emotional stability and being strong in that regard when you're going through the process is absolutely key. Um, and so I would actually, I actually advise clients to, to, to try and talk with the counselor or therapist if they think that that, if that could help them. Cause I think people are generally, they don't want to take their issues to their own family and talk about things. And so it's nice to have somebody to bounce those things off of um, that isn't your attorney, who's more of sort of the business side of things, even though I, I provide, I think, some some bit of counseling. That's definitely not not what I'm best at. That makes sense. Are there different steps uh, if there's other issues that are going on, like if it's a abusive relationship, whether emotionally or physically or, you know, in those types of uh, arrangements, the one spouse can feel really scared and really nervous to leave. And, and how do you guide people through that? So that that is definitely a, a different circumstance and one that it, it doesn't come up a lot, um, at least in our practice. But when it does, um, there are certainly avenues you can take to start the divorce that are much different than sort of, I, I wouldn't call it really traditional, but the way we like to start them, which is more on the amicable side and instead of just kind of coming out guns blazing. But for, um, but if you have those circumstances where, you know, let's say there's either physical or, you know, kind of some significant emotional abuse going on, you can actually start the case by going to court um, beforehand and getting court orders um, that can do a variety of things, including, um, you know, no contact between the spouses, um, having one of the spouses actually court ordered to move out of the house. There's just so those those would be the types of things that we discuss if that's going on. And, you know, I always say um, and, and advise clients, especially when we're having those sort of consultations that, you know, once you leave this office, if you go back home, you know, the, the first thing you need to do if if something is, you know, scaring you or you're fearful is is to call law enforcement. There's this I think there's this thing that once people meet with an attorney, then after that, they're like, oh, well, I need to run this by my attorney first. And that's that's definitely not the advice. Um, so that's that's what we would do in those circumstances. Gotcha. That's helpful. Uh, I speak with a lot of spouses who feel that they're really in the dark when it comes to the financial aspect of, of their lives. 
And so my goal is to work with clients to help create checklists and action items, you know, like you talked about some of those credit card statements, investment statements, um, those types of things. But overall, it can feel really daunting if you haven't been involved in that side of the equation. What advice do you have for a spouse that wants to divorce but has no insight to the financial matters? Um, yeah, those can be tough, especially if, you know, that whole organization is key thing before you start. It's never, it's not always going to be perfect. In fact, it's never perfect. I wish I had a case that was perfect. But um, in the in the case where you really have, have little to no insight, I think the best approach is, is usually for me as the attorney to um, just to give the client some sense of security that we will find out the information and that it may take some time. But, um, and then the next step then being for me to contact the other, uh, the other spouse's attorney. And I just have a frank conversation um, kind of from the outset about, you know, the position my client's in, you know, that, that we would prefer the divorce again, kind of track down that amicable path. But, if, if we can't get the information voluntarily, you know, then we have to switch, you know, to the more compelling side of things, which can, which just increases the cost for everyone and really doesn't solve anything, except I think, you know, make the case more difficult. And so I, I just, I haven't had that much difficulty in that regard. And like I said, once you kind of get that relationship with the other attorney, the documents start coming in. Then you start to realize, I think, you know, okay, well, am I really getting everything? Am I missing something? And then if any of that's uh, even remotely possible, I would advise that, you know, the client do some more formal discovery. And that can include anything from um, subpoenas that will actually get the documents from the institution itself or uh, questions that the other side will answer under penalty of perjury. And it just becomes sort of like, building a wall with bricks and you just kind of do with each piece of each document you get, you kind of, you know, it's like, Oh, well, it's leading to this, to this account. And, um, you know, I think, you know, tax returns by themselves are sort of a treasure trove of mm -hmm. ways to find, find things that might be missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. You know, I've, uh, spent some time looking through tax, uh, tax returns, looking at, you know, cause, by looking through those, you can see interests, you can see all the, at least the reportable assets of, of what's being reported, any contributions, taxable interest, capital gains, things like that. So that's typically where I start with that. What about, so I recently met with, with someone who was saying that they're concerned that their spouse is going to spend their joint assets, uh, you know, the, their bank account assets. There was a large deposit from a property sale and that they're concerned that the other spouse's spending is, is a little out of control. How, what is uh, what steps can they take to safeguard that? Is it, is it uh, more pertinent to file immediately so that there's that separation or what are those steps? Yeah, definitely. If you're in the sort of consultation meeting steps, filing sooner than later is probably the best way to go. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you didn't file and they dissipated a bunch of assets, it couldn't be recouped later. Um, but I think from an optics standpoint, it's it's looking more like, okay, this is final. We're totally separated. And, you know, you went off and, you know, bought a Rolex and a new car and a whole bunch of other things. And that should be sort of your debt. 
or your, you know, a predistribution of the assets to you um, in the divorce. There's, I mean, there's certain things like safeguard wise, at least in King County, when you file a case now, they, um, they issue an automatic temporary restraining order, which, which goes to both parties and basically uh, it orders both of them not to spend outside of usual course of business or for necessities of life. So that's, you know, that's everything from mortgage, regular groceries, and just anything that's not sort of on the extraordinary side. So that's sort of one safeguard. Now that doesn't actually uh, freeze accounts and like stop someone from spending. I think there's some confusion from clients on that piece. And so I have to advise them that, you know, no, this is a, it's a court order, so it can be enforced, but it doesn't literally prevent them from spending. And so, you know, kind of on the spectrum of most protective to, I guess, least on the most protective side, you would actually have to go to court to get an order to freeze an account. But that's pretty extreme. And the court is usually probably not going to do that. And then, you know, I've I'm always a little hesitant to have clients move money in a way that is sort of atypical of like their historical spending. But, you know, I had a case the other day where the parties had a joint account and my client was concerned and, you know, it had a, a pretty significant amount of money, but it was just like a checking account. Right. And so, you know, what I said was, you know, look, I think if you, if you move half of it, but you tell them, look, I'm moving half of the money over to this other account in my name, you can keep the other half, you know, generally, if you're going to be splitting that money 50, 50, anyway, that can be a way to, to make the client a little less concerned um, about how it goes. And then, However you spend it on your end, that's yours. And however they spend it is theirs. So that's another good way to do it. I see. That makes sense. So that leads me into my next question. Speaking more generally about asset division here in Washington state, we're in a community property state where things are assets that were acquired during the marriage are generally split 50-50. But how are those different in Washington state compared to other states that are not community property? Right. So, yes, Washington is, is community property. There's there's nine community property states um, and we are one of them. But of those nine, I'm not I'm actually not quite sure how ours is compares to those. And I would assume that they're all different and at least in some ways. Um, but, yeah, for for Washington, the first step that the court does in dividing the properties, it has to characterize it. Um, so. That means it's either community or separate. And sort of generally, the rule is that anything during the marriage, acquired during the marriage or earned during the marriage is going to be community property. And that's just the presumption the court goes in with. And then the exception to that is if during the marriage you get a gift or inheritance, um, that is going to be sort of carved out as your separate property. And then, of course, anything you had before the marriage and then after the separation is your separate property. Now, the idea that, you know, it's only everything's only split 50 50 is sort of. Well, it's not sort of it's actually it isn't the law on how, how the court divides it. Um, it's a it's a bit more nuanced in that after the characterization occurs, then the court does what it calls a just and equitable distribution. And in that context, I think that's where a lot of people who come into the divorce without having talked to an attorney have this concept of, oh, well, it's simple. You know, anything that's separate is mine and anything that's community, I just get half of. 
Um, and it's really not the case. And it just depends on the facts of each case, because in that just and equitable distribution side of things, that's where the court can say, you know, no, in this in this uh, circumstance, we think it's more fair for the wife to receive, you know, 55 percent of the community or, you know, even up to like 60 percent. Um, and in some cases, although I think it is on the more extreme side, they can allocate separate property to the other spouse. Again, I think that is on the rare side. Um, you know, I think that comes up more um, in the circumstance of you, when you have a really long term marriage, mm. 30, 35, 40 years. And at some point, the court leans toward, you know, having each spouse leave more or less on equal footing, uh, even if that means shifting some of the separate property. And then as far as kind of the non-community property states, I know very general, generally that they have sort of this equitable division idea, um, which I think varies, of course, from state to state. But getting into the weeds on each of those is something that I, I just I don't have a ton of knowledge on. Sure, that's fair. Uh, I have a, I actually got this question just the other day of thinking about community property and what's separate and what's uh, community if let's say one spouse owns a house coming into the marriage and uh, they get married, the other spouse moves into the house. Um, is there any way to keep the house separate property? I mean, I know that it's really easy to commingle assets. Let's say the, the spouse that didn't own the home doesn't pay the mortgage or pay any of the utilities. I mean, is there any real way to keep that separate or is it pretty, is it, is it more challenging than that? So if, if, Let's just say um, the wife owns the house coming into the marriage, and then that's where that's going to sort of be the family home during the marriage. It actually it actually maintains that character during the marriage. So it will still be her separate property because that's the way it was coming in. Um, the The idea would be, though, is that down the road, if they were to get a divorce, um, the husband may have what we call a right of reimbursement from the house and that would come in in the way of you know let's say that during the marriage and funded with you know community income they do a two hundred thousand dollar remodel you know if the divorce were to occur that piece would sort of be taken out as community um, and again not not going to the husband it would be you know that 50 50 idea because it's community um, but then the rest would remain separate so there's an there's a there's an idea that or I should say a kind of a legal theory that if it's a separate property house and you use it as the family home, if your if your mortgage payment is roughly what rent would be in an in an equivalent house, then the non-property owning spouse is really already getting the benefit of what they would otherwise have been having been spent on a rental. And so the, so the idea is they really shouldn't receive any compensation for money they would otherwise be spending, you know, if they weren't married to each other. Um, so, yeah, in the, in the scenario you have, um, it, it would still be separate property, um, but there just might be a right of reimbursement down the road for the community. But, um, but one way to sort of really clarify things would be or could be to do either a prenuptial agreement or some sort of property status agreement. That really just spells out, you know, soup to nuts, exactly what the agreement is. You know, this is my separate property. Here's how we're going to fund things. If we get a divorce, this is how we're going to decide 
you know, how much goes to the community and how much doesn't. Um, and I think that's a good way for everyone to kind of know the rules of the road, you know, as far as that goes. Do you recommend, especially for for folks that are bringing assets into a marriage, uh, maybe getting la- married later in life or a second marriage, do you recommend prenups? Yes, I do. As a general idea, you know, it, it needs to be the right circumstance. You know, like you said, it if you have people just coming out of college and, you know, all they have is debt and don't have anything yet, probably don't need a prenup. You know, if you're on your second, third or, you know, later marriage, then you sort of know what it's been like to go through a couple a couple times the first time. And if you didn't have an agreement, you may think, OK, you know, this really makes sense this time around. And then, of course, you know, if you've got, um, you know, some significant separate wealth coming in, I, I do think it's a good idea. Um, now, I always I preface that with, you know, telling clients that, you know, there's no at least in Washington, there's no such thing as the ironclad prenup. Um, you know, that is, you know, cannot be subject to any scrutiny later. It's just not what the law is here. Um, but the way I describe it is it's it's just sort of it's doing everything in your control and kind of belt and suspending it as much as you can um, to plan for, you know, what is kind of an unforeseen circumstance, which would be divorce. But the big thing with prenups is get it done early. So if if you think it's a possibility, have those discussions. It's going to be uncomfortable. You kind of have to accept that fact. But, you know, if you're getting married a year from now, you know, I would say that you need to start having those conversations with counsel probably at least a year in advance. And I, I try not to have him try not to have them signed any later than like six months before the marriage, because this, the closer you get, the more scrutiny they can be looked at later in terms of having them undone. I see. That's good to know. I didn't realize the the issue with that timeline there. So that's really interesting. Looking at uh, alimony and child support, what are some of the general rules for that? I've noticed with a lot of clients that have been getting divorced in more recent years that it seems like alimony is only for a few years, even if the marriage is you know, 10, 20 years. So um, can you give some more insight into that? Yeah, so um, alimony or what we're not what we now call spousal maintenance or just maintenance, it's based on factors. Um, and so, you know, the opposite of that is obviously like a formula. That's more child support. Child support is very formulaic. Once you can agree on the party's incomes, which can be a fight in and of itself, but once you have those kind of buttoned up, that's an easier one to to wrap your arms around. With the factors of maintenance, it's a little more difficult um, because, you know, you lack that formula. Um, And so the court's going to look at the need of the spouse asking for maintenance versus the ability of the spouse paying maintenance to pay the maintenance. The court's going to look at things like time necessary for the, we'll just say the non-moneyed spouse to get employed. Um, You know, does he or she need new certification, college degree, any sort of training? You know, how long is that going to take? The court's going to look at the standard of living um, of the parties when when it's looking at how much and for how long maintenance should be paid, duration of the marriage, um, and then just sort of generally the age, physical um, capabilities of the other party and all of those things. And then 
you know, really what it does is, you know, it takes all those things and then kind of puts them all together and then outspits the amount and, and the duration. Um, now, obviously, the idea is and hope is that these things get resolved at a mediation or settlement and not by the court. Um, but if it goes to court, that's that's the way it's going to go down. Um, and I think, you know, this isn't again, there is no formula. But when I have clients um, or potential clients really try to pin me down on, OK, well, I just need to know roughly what do you think in terms of how long maintenance will be paid? You know, I would say it's a very, you know, back of the napkin approach to it. Uh, it's about one year for every three to five of marriage. Um, again, that's a pretty wide, you know, I think wide range, but I think that's pretty fair. Um, and then I would say the longer, so the longer you're married, you know, once you're getting 20, 25, 30 year plus, I think the court is gonna tend to lean more toward sort of equalizing the incomes between the spouse, the moneyed spouse and the non-moneyed spouse, at least for that, at least for a period of time. And then of course, sort of on the side, you've got how the court is dividing the assets. So, you know, I've had circumstances where a client really doesn't want to pay maintenance or wants to pay for less years. And so they would rather have um, their spouse or ex, soon to be ex-spouse get, you know, 60% of the property. And, you know, the math works out to where they're just kind of like, I just want to be done with this. And so that's a way to do it too. I think the court's less inclined to do that, but you, of course, have a little more creativity with settlement scenarios. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, that ties into something that I do when I'm working with clients. Uh, I work with them a lot kind of on the front end to get their, their budget together, get their documents together, kind of work through those affidavits. And then I try to help them. Uh, as they're looking at asset division, alimony, kind of all of those factors to figure out how do these decisions you're making today, like I have a lot of clients that say, I really want to stay in the house um, and give up more of the liquid assets or the retirement assets just so that I can stay in the house. And that might not always be in the best long-term interest for their finances. So I work a lot to project cash flow to say, if you take this type of settlement versus that type of settlement, this is kind of the financial impact of that, um, as well as, you know, once the divorce is final, going back to work, you know, what type of job could you get looking at different scenarios there? What if you move to a different area, you do move to a different house, um, that kind of thing. So I really try to show the long-term impact of decisions that are made during this process. Uh, what tools do you use to support clients during that to really help them think more long-term as opposed to more emotionally, like if they're really tied to the house or something? Um, it would most certainly be people like yourself. You know, I, I feel like Doing this as long as I've done it now, I have a good idea about, you know, very generally what, you know, people should be looking at in terms of, um, you know, like the family house or, you know, do I want more retirement versus, you know, this investment account now. But when when the estates start getting larger and you're really trying to plan out, you know, OK, I need, you know, the, you have clients with concerns especially the non-moneyed spouse about, you know, oh my gosh, how am I going to live another, I don't know, 
40 plus years with what, you know, with what we have right now. And, you know, when that's doable, you know, that's certainly not uh, my specialty is. And so that's when I turn to CDFAs like yourself to do that cash flow analysis, the mapping, and then just sort of just so the client can see it on a nice, clean, you know, one pager, make it very simple um, because it does get, you know, overwhelming, you know, that, okay, with this principle and with these investments, you're going to get this income over this period of time. And so, you know, as morbid as it sounds, you know, if you live to 80, 85, 90, 95, you're still going to have enough and be more than comfortable. And then getting, I think just getting the clients to understand that every dollar on the spreadsheet is not equal is like so critical um, because tax implications, um, all sorts of things that that clients I don't think sort of will think about sometimes, especially when they're emotionally wrapped up and sort of um, maybe not looking at it as more of a business transaction, which is really kind of what it is when you're just doing the finances. Um, and so I think um, I think getting that outside perspective is very helpful. Um, and I also like to keep, I like to kind of keep clean the roles of kind of who's all involved in the case. And, you know, as the divorce attorney for the client, you know, you're kind of trying to like quarterback like a team because you may have, you know, like a CPA on one side and then a CDFA. And so you want to make sure that like I just I don't I don't like the idea of a client thinking of me as as the financial advisor. And so I just try to make it very clear that, you know, my role is knowing how the court will divide these things and what's the best path to get, you know, the sort of number that we're looking for. But then it's, you know, it's people like yourself that provide the, you know, the critical insight in terms of, you know, which of these things should go in my column versus which should go in their column and then coming to an agreement on that. And, you know, the family house has got to be the number one, <laughs> the number one thing I see the most where I just see, um, you know, at times sort of a train wreck down the road about keeping this massive house that was for, you know, a family of five when now it's maybe one or two and all of the upkeep and, you know, everything that comes along with that. And then if you take the house, then, you know, you know, you better live in it for a long time because if you turn around and sell it in a year, you know, then you're paying all of the closing costs then you have potential capital gains. And so anyway, those are the things that that I think are, are great for CDFAs and others to kind of work with the client on. Mm -hmm. I like what you said, Blake, about not every dollar on a balance sheet is equal. <laughs> I think that that's, like you said, the family house, that's what I've seen as well, is that there's just that huge emotional tie to the house. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of cases where, um, it, it, you know, it wasn't the best decision. And that's part of the reason why I became a CDFA was because I, I, I spoke with many spouses after the divorce, you know, everything's been split. And now, you know, you, you have what you have, you have uh, the house and maybe no other liquid assets and just trying to navigate through that and figure out what's the best course to move forward. And, you know, fortunately, once, once everything is signed and done, there, there's no going back. So I really wanted to be able to work with clients as they're going through that process, or even when they're just thinking about that process of what does this look like? And and what are kind of the general rules if I do end up going through with this divorce? So 
And I um, think that, that reminds me too of um, timing of things. You know, get, getting the CDFA involved early is key. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't help after, like you said, after you've signed everything to then say, okay, now go meet with the financial advisor. And then, you know, you guys look at it and go, oh boy, um, you know, and there's nothing you can do at that point. So I think getting the client familiar and comfortable with, you know, with the expert that's coming in early on is really key. And sometimes I'll even, you know, I'll have, you know, have the financial expert, you know, I guess when we did these things in person, like with me at mediation, or at least, um, you know, like a phone call away, um, just so you can kind of get that drilled down because yeah, I've seen, um, I've seen a few more than a few cases come where clients want to consult when the case is over and I've found, you know, Oh, I didn't realize that, you know, the IRA that I took, if I took money out, I was going to get hit with an early withdrawal with, you know, withdrawal fee and then also taxes and then all this stuff. And then it's just too late. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with what you said. Getting involved early is really important. I even just have clients that email me or folks that will reach out and say, I'm thinking about getting divorced. You know, what are some, just some general things I should think about or what are some steps I should take now? So I like to be in, in folks corner to support them through that. Um, so now let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say, uh, once the divorce is final, uh, I work with clients in quite a number of ways, you know, both looking at how to, you know, now this is what the settlement is. These are what the assets are. And here's kind of putting together projections of like we were just talking about, does it make sense to move to a new area, get a new type of career, um, you know, update your retirement plan, those types of things. Um, but also just some logistical things of, updating account titles and beneficiaries and rethinking investment strategies and your estate plan, um, all of those, you know, there's just a huge checklist of items. Um, what's something that, you know, I didn't mention, but that oftentimes people don't think about after the divorce of, of what are some, uh, some to do items. I think that's a pretty good list. I, I'd say my, my two most important that I always will follow up with clients to at least advise them to go do it. And then whether it happens is up to them, but is to make sure and change the beneficiary designations on any accounts. And I think so many times people, you know, they set those and then they forget them. I mean, who goes back and actually looks at those very often? It's pretty rare. Um, and so make sure that you've got a good list of those um, and make sure those are changed. And then I think you touched on it too, the estate planning. You know, I think depending on depending on the case and sort of the, the estate plan going into the divorce, you know, there might be things that you maybe even want to change while the divorce is pending. Um, now you want to make sure that you can do that with the orders that are in place. But getting all of that arranged and done after the divorce, I think, is so key because everything, you know, your whole life is transformed and different. And so I can't imagine really many estate plans that don't need any updating after the divorce. But hmm, other than that, I think, I think, and you probably touched on this, I think, you know, meeting, you know, with your financial person just to go through every, all of the, all of the accounts and do a balancing and kind of a anal, analyze, analyzing them to see, you know, what are the investment strategies and what are we looking at down the road and making all those changes. But other than that, I think that's a good list. Mm -hmm. Well, great. 
Well, Blake, uh, that was all the questions that I had. I really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down. And I think you know, it's an uncomfortable topic for people to talk about, uh, but I get questions from people very frequently. So I know that this is gonna be a real value add, at least to, to shed some light on the process and, and what all of that looks like. So thank you very much. Good, again, thanks for having me. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.